Hi, and welcome to Islington Baptist Church's podcast. This is where you'll find our weekly Bible talks from our church service every Sunday. We hope you enjoy and you might like to leave us a review or rating. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. The faith of a centurion. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralysed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marvelled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus heals many. And when Jesus entered into Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought him many who were oppressed with demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfil what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the word of God. A number of years ago, before moving to Newcastle, I had great power. See, I worked as the director of a Christian holiday camps organisation, and under my great reign, there was a thousand volunteers, willing servants, submissive young adults, of course. I could say stop, and they'd stop, and go, and go, and by my title director, they respected my authority. Well, not really. I got to set policies and send mass email directives, you know, an email where I could click send and it would go to a thousand people. One of my most well-known policies 
was the prohibited activities on camps, version 1.2. It was thrilling reading, really. Which areas were unauthorised for, for, for access? Where people couldn't go? Rules on which activities were allowed to be played, like no flaming soccer, for example. And yes, that had happened, and so I needed to set the rule. Or another one, no horizontal bungee, or no planned high-speed collisions. They were all listed in Prohibited Activities on Camps version 1.2. And as part of my role, I visited all of the camps, drove around New South Wales to visit the camps, and I visited one camp where all the kids were, were, were slip and sliding. Now, the activity, you set up a, a tarp or some plastic on the ground, you cover it with water and detergent, and then tell the kids to run. And if it's a good hill, they'll go pretty quick. And I'd parked in the car park at this spot in Gerringong, and I looked out and I saw the kids going down the hill. Oh, that looks like a fun activity. This is great. What I didn't see until I got out of the car was this wasn't just one hill, there was two. And that wasn't two separate slip and slides, it was basically one. And they were starting at the same time at each end, running up, these were about 12 or 13 year olds, running up and sliding at fairly high pace down a good uh, steepness hill towards each other to get the eggs which were in the middle. A completely planned high-speed collision, breaking my policy. Well, as I walked over, uh, one of the leaders saw me coming, and she knew, oh, that's Nick, she said to someone else. He's the director of, of the holiday camps. And then proceeded to egg one of the kids on to go a bit faster down the slip and slide. Absolutely no respect for my authority. Not at all. And this kind of treatment of authority, it's not just volunteers on camps, is it? You know, all of us disregard authority at times, maybe not so obvious as that example, but we all do it. Think we'd know better than whoever else is maybe in charge in a particular circumstance. Think maybe we'd be a better boss, a better captain, a better leader, maybe even a better preacher or pastor, a better organiser. See, we live in a time, and I particularly in my work with university students, work with a generation which have a decreasing level of respect for those in authority. Our society, our Australian culture particularly, has very flat organisational structures. We call our bosses by nicknames. Respect is not expressed in a particularly formal way. Now, I understand that that's reasonably different to uh, Chinese culture, but for most Aussies, especially younger Aussies, unless there's real and significant consequences for a decision that's going to be made or disrespect, then respect often looks pretty low. And even when we do have some level of respect, submission and obedience, they don't automatically follow. We think we've got a right to, to disobey just innately. And we like to keep our submission generally on our own terms. And so why is that? Why is that? It's hard to diagnose for, for each of us, but maybe it's pride. Maybe we do actually know better and have more insight. Maybe that's possible, but maybe it also is sometimes that we don't realise who we're dealing with, their authority. Well, what about when it comes to, to God, to, to the Bible, to Jesus? Would you call your attitude to Jesus one of respect? Would you call it submission even? How far does Jesus' authority reach? We, we hear of his power and we think he's got authority, but how far does that authority reach even into our own lives? 
is it just theoretically true? Or does it actually transform us? Does it change us? So we're jumping back into Matthew's account. Uh, We looked at it a little while ago before our previous series. And we're going to be starting in in chapter 8 and working through to chapter 10. But to set the scene on the screen, you'll see, before this, before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had been going through the Galilee, teaching and proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom and healing every disease and sickness amongst the people. So in some ways, the bit we're picking up in chapter 8 just picks up from this, though it was interrupted by the Sermon on the Mount in the middle. Crowds of Jews and non-Jews are intrigued by Jesus. They follow him up onto this mountain not far from Lake Galilee. And there on the mountain, Jesus teaches them. He teaches them what he thought of the Jewish law. He teaches them what it means to follow him, to be a person, a kingdom person, a person associated with God's kingdom, God's way. And Jesus, on that, in that Sermon on the Mount, makes some really confronting claims. And what, what's people's response to Jesus? When Jesus had finished saying all these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus' teaching has authority. But but how much? How much will this impact their lives? How far does his authority reach? Well, that's where we pick up the story and we're going to work through the account. And by the end of this, you'll really have heard it three times this morning which I think is helpful as we really grasp what's going on in this passage. So the story, let's pick it up from chapter 8 and verse 1. Jesus came down from the mountainside and large crowds followed him, which tells us straight away that Jesus is popular, he's intriguing. And yet amidst the crowd, Matthew zooms in for us on just one man, this man who probably wasn't near Jesus at the place where he, he taught the Sermon on the Mountain in that crowd, Or if he was, he shouldn't have been because he was an outcast from society. People treated him as such and he shouldn't have been amongst the other people because he had leprosy, a form of skin disease. But he comes and he kneels before Jesus. Now just stop and picture this. This man with with spots, physical scars even, rashes, weeping skin, maybe bleeding, pus. Back when that first started, he would have had to go to the priest and the priest would have pronounced him unclean, which turned a medical issue into a spiritual issue. He's not now allowed to enter particular places of worship. He had to stay away from people, so it becomes a social issue as well. And if he did come into a town and need to buy food, he'd have to cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean so that people would just stay away from him. Now picture this person walking down Beaumont Street here in Hamilton, having to cry out, unclean, stay away from me, stay away from me. It'll be better for you if you stay away from me. It's a horrible way to live, isn't it? When I was in year 10 at school, I did work experience uh, at a vet, the Tamworth Vet Clinic, and, and it was enough that week to talk me out of pursuing that career path forever. Particularly one moment sticks out to me. There was this dog, and I had to walk the dog. The dog lived out in the back uh, of, the, of the vet clinic, and there was a kind of a cage, I'd say, out the back. It wasn't very good. And I got the job of walking this one dog. 
And the dog was covered in, in spots. Its hair was basically gone, and it had pus all over it from this disease that it had. Like, it, 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 was, it was putrid to the nose. It stunk. And they had to treat it each day with this special cream, and then I had to walk it. Now, I'm walking around the streets of Tamworth at the time, and I can say I always had the path to myself. As I'd come along with this dog, kind of not even wanting to look at the poor thing, people would clear the path for me as I came through. Imagine this man with leprosy walking along. This is his experience. Imagine if he walked into a crowded cafe, or if I did with that little puppy. Well, verse 2, this leper comes through the crowd up to Jesus, humbly bows down, Lord, sir, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What is he thinking at this point? He wants to be restored, and so he figures that if Jesus is really the Lord, the guy being followed down the mountain, and if he wants healing for him, well, then it'll happen. That's incredible belief, isn't it? This guy believes that there is no possible barrier between what Jesus wills, what he wants, and the result happening. He grasps that Jesus has authority to fix his sickness, which will fix his social isolation and his spiritual isolation. And so we've got this guy, this unclean man there, kneeling down before Jesus on show, and he's vulnerable to all the people. How will Jesus respond? Will Jesus rebuke him for breaking the law? Verse 3, Jesus reached out his hand and touches the man. But he's unclean. Unclean. Jesus says, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately what Jesus wills, what he wants, happens. This spotted, scarred, seeping skin is now spotless. What a transformation. This is medicine beyond borders on a whole nother level. Jesus style. And yet verse 4, Jesus says, Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. But go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift as a testimony to them. Now this was the practice at the time after someone got better. Remember that the priest had to initially proclaim the man unclean? Well, the priest had also to proclaim the man clean in order for him to re-enter society, to verify the healing. His skin was restored, but without the priest saying so, his social life and his spiritual life is not restored. He's still considered unclean. And so Jesus obeys the Jewish legal system here. And in so doing, he ensures this man has access, re-access into society. He really is fully restored. But we can imagine, the, imagine being the priest as this man walks in. Do, do, I think I, I know this guy, but the, there's a change, a transform. It's miraculous and amazing. But then before we can catch a breath in this story, Matthew tells us we find Jesus in the town of Capernaum. And verse 5, a Roman centurion, this non-Jew, comes. And his job, if he's a centurion, he's got power. He's to command a, a century of soldiers, about a hundred of them, to ensure the Jews in the area stayed submissive to the, to the Romans who were in authority. He's got authority. Soldiers under him at homes, at work and servants under him at home. And unlike me with my vast army of a thousand volunteers... This guy might have actually had people do what he said because he spoke on behalf of Rome, the emperor. 
And yet this guy comes to Jesus, this commander, and he makes no commands, although he'd be very used to making commands. Not even a question. He assumes nothing. Verse 6, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and is terribly suffering. His fellow soldiers at this point might be wondering, well, haven't you got lots of servants? Like, what matters about this one guy? Why bother yourself with him and notice his significant pain? Well, this centurion doesn't seem like he's like the other soldiers. Jesus responds, verse 7, Shall I come and heal him? Or it could be a, a statement, I'll go. Either way, this man knows that Jesus, a, a Jew, is willing to go and enter his religiously unclean Gentile house. Verse 8, the man says, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. And a sick servant of a non-Jew whose job description is to oppress the Jews and keep them under control will immediately be healed. How is this even possible? And yet this guy's no fool, this centurion. He knows how authorities work. When he says go, his servants go. Why does he know that? He knows that authority is, is from above, ultimately. In his case, it's from the emperor. If he says fight, his troops will fight. If he says, Jesus says fixed, this servant will be fixed as this man understands what's going on. But Jesus isn't even in the same house as this guy. The centurion believes that Jesus has authority from above, authority that transcends space, supernatural authority, divine authority. And he's acted in humility and weakness here. He's put himself right out there. Imagine if news of this conversation got leaked to his fellow centurions. This act of weakness and humility. It's very un-Roman. Or if it got leaked to his troops. What if he's wrong about Jesus? What happens then? Well, Jesus hears this man and is astonished, amazed. And he announces, verse 10, to those following him, probably Jews and Gentiles both, that this Roman, a Gentile outsider, has greater faith than the insiders, God's special chosen people. And so what this is, is this kind of high five for faith, and at the same time, it's a backhand slap, a rebuke for hypocrisy. Verse 11, Jesus explains that many more outsiders, just like this man, are going to come from east and from west, every direction across the Mediterranean and beyond the Jordan. They'll become insiders, even though those inside always thought of them as outsiders. They'll be with God at, at, when Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, the heroes. And they'll be sitting next to Mr. Centurion, Gentilian and Syrian. Because entry is not based, based on ethnicity, it's based on faith. Faith in Jesus, and that's how it's always been. And so over in Galatians, we read what Paul writes about Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. And down in verse 9, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so people with faith, trust, belief, trust in God to rescue, they are the ones 
who will be part of God's kingdom. But in their, the place they take, as Jesus tells us in verse 12, the subjects of the kingdom, those who assumed they were insiders by virtue of their ethnicity and their religious heritage and, and their family, they'll be excluded, which is a devastating critique that Jesus just drops in here in this moment. The subjects of the kingdom are those who, in the nation, God's chosen as his representative people. The generations after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and so we expect that list to continue right through to the Jews of Jesus' day. And Jesus says to them, they'll be thrown out into the darkness. If they don't have faith, like this man, like Abraham. See, this is picture language, the darkness here, picture language for bleak hopelessness, abandonment, the complete absence of the goodness of God. And so why does this happen? Why does this happen? Well, it's a lack of faith. That's the contrast here. What, or more correctly, who their faith is in? Is Jesus the object of their faith? Is God's plan for rescue the thing they're believing in? If Jesus is right, no faith in him means no feast for all eternity, which is a huge claim just snuck into this little passage here. Jesus presents himself here as the judge of faith, the one who knows the guest list of God's kingdom banquet. And the question is, does Jesus' authority really reach that far? Does Jesus' authority really reach that far? Well, the centurion's still standing there at this moment, and he hopes Jesus' authority is legitimate. Jesus says, go, let it be done just as you believed it would, and his servant was healed at that very moment. It's like he's simply giving permission here. Go, let it be done for you. And he's healed. What extraordinary authority. And yet for a man who, servant, we don't even meet or even learn his name. And again, Matthew moves on pretty quickly, verse 14, to takes us to Peter's house. And Jesus enters and finds Peter's mother-in-law there, a woman, sick in bed, fevering, maybe shaking, spluttering, sweating, clearly with a significant fever. And there's no antibiotics back then. And again, without any direct request, Jesus touches her hand and, and the fever leaves her. And she gets up and serves him or them and again, this is extraordinary, and yet it's recorded with such simplicity. It, Jesus, Matthew makes it seem like it's just so completely expected here. Of course Jesus would do this. Look what he's done before. And again, Matthew moves on, verse 16, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed are brought to Jesus. And I think here what's going on is they're probably waiting for the Sabbath to end, which adds something to the previous healing. And the demon-possessed men had to be brought to Jesus, which if they have to be brought, that tells us something of their, their condition, the control of the demons upon them, and them being outsiders, being excluded from society, like the leper, often outside the towns, in some place, the caves and places like that would be where, they would, where they were sent to go. Imagine the, the oppressive thoughts controlling them, the, their exclusion from society and the impact on them. No access to the temple. No avenue for help except Jesus who drove out spirits with a word. And again, that theme, Jesus just speaks and something happens. 
and he healed all the sick with a word. And again, Matthew records it with this simplicity. The simplicity, it seems, by which Jesus did it. Imagine a hospital full of people. You go up to the martyr and you're driving past and you just notice everyone's walking out, literally everyone. You think, is this a fire drill? No, no, everyone's well. This is extraordinary. And yet it shouldn't be unexpected. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities, our pains, and bore our diseases. This simple little commentary from Matthew, this quote. When we read quotes like that in the New Testament, we're meant to know the Old Testament, the whole chapter, the whole section it comes from. We're meant to recall all of its context. Isaiah 53, where it's from, promises this king that the Jews were hoping for, but not the kind of king they expected. Look at these descriptions. He didn't have an impressive form. He was despised and rejected, a suffering one. And yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. The long-awaited king of the kingdom is one who would stand with suffering and even stand in suffering, taking it on himself. Bear and beat sin as he's pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, our sins. He suffers so that people, you and I even, can be at peace with God. This King Jesus has great authority. It reaches to unexpected people across big barriers, even distance to unexpected places. That's how far Jesus' authority reaches. It reaches to, to, to everyone. Earlier I mentioned uh, the medical organisation uh, Doctors Without Borders. Maybe you've met them in a shopping centre asking for support. And their mission's good. It's to help those in need, those in the greatest need, those who it's too dangerous often for other medical institutions to go and help. Conflict places. Is this Jesus' work? Is he basically that but 2,000 years ago? Let me ask a question that may sound like some kind of joke. What does a leper, a non-Jewish commander's servant, a woman and a demon-possessed man have in common? What do they have in common? They're all excluded from help, aren't they? All of them. At least two of them excluded medically, but definitely each of them spiritually. They're banned from participation in worship. They were outsiders to the religious system the system that defined the culture of their day. And Jesus reaches out and he makes outsiders into insiders. And he does that even still today. All he asks for is faith. Faith that's simply directed at him, God's rescuer. That's surrendered to him, God's saviour. Faith that recognises that no matter what we've done or, or who we've become even, none of us are too far away. None of us are too broken for Jesus. Jesus' authority reaches everyone. Outsiders, yes, but also insiders. Because notice here Jesus has them in mind. Outsiders here are sitting on the kingdom chairs of the insiders who are thrown out by the one they've ignored. They've assumed they're okay. They've assumed they don't need Jesus, but no one can escape from his authority. It reaches to them, but the impact on them is pretty different. And it reaches over everything, over everyone and over everything. Notice when Jesus wants something to happen, it's done. Not, not like as good as done, 
but actually done. There's no barrier between what he, what he wants, what he wills, and the action taking place in these passages. Distance doesn't matter. Risk of becoming unclean himself doesn't matter. Which tells us that for Jesus, it's not a matter of whether he can do something, but whether he will do something. Which means the right question that we should be asking Jesus is not, can you, but will you? Jesus' words are not just wise teachings. He's the judge of faith. His words carry power. The power of God. His authority reaches over everything. But it also reaches right in. Right inside. Behind the facade of our, our lives. Many of the sick in those days were incurably sick in their medical system. And yet Jesus' healing reaches right in to restore them. Right from the center. And as we see in these passages and as we continue in Matthew, this is just like a trailer to a movie. They point to something more. They point to the kingdom, the way of the kingdom, God's way, complete eternal restoration of people, of relationship with God, to the full experience of Jesus' rule as king. These are a trailer to the movie. Precursors to suffering being gone forever. No more sickness or mourning or crying or pain. Why? Because sin will be dealt with, the root cause of all of this. Jesus' extraordinary authority reaches over everyone, over everything, and reaches right in. And so let me ask as we finish, has Jesus' authority reached you? Has it reached right in? Has he overwhelmed your mind? Has he restored your soul? See, we might respect Jesus, and I think we read these passages and we hear these stories, and, and he's worthy of respect, certainly. But what about surrendering like the people in these passages, with this simple faith, and yet great faith, because it's in the great Jesus? I wonder how you found this past month, past week even, this past year, for me, it's meant lots of opportunities to, to do things like this, to teach and meet with students at the uni and have some conversations with non-Christians at the uni and have pastoral conversations, lots of good things, but challenging things. There's challenges of maintaining an orderly life at home to support everything we do. What about you? What's this last week, month, year look like? Maybe it's been hard. Maybe overwhelming maybe scary even, God's showing us here that when our authority to control our own lives and our circumstances just does not cut it, let alone to control anything beyond ourselves, His authority does. And so God's teaching us to say, I can't, but Jesus, you can, and so will you. I can't be as patient as I need to be, but Jesus, you can. You can help me, and so will you. I can't provide everything I need financially all the time. You can help. So will you? I can't maintain self-control all the time with my workmates or wherever it may be. But Jesus, you can. You can help. Will you? It shouldn't take us a hard week. It shouldn't take us a new job or even moving to a new country, as some here have experienced this week, to realize that we can't, to believe that he can and to ask that he will.
and then trust him for the rest, knowing that if Jesus says no or not yet to our question, it's not because he can't, not because he doesn't like the power. Jesus' authority reaches over everyone, over everything, and right in to really restore. And so let me pray that we might grasp that afresh again. Our great God, we thank you for this Jesus and what he shows us in his life and ministry. These just incredible acts that are so powerful and yet are just a precursor to what he will do in restoring the whole kingdom, your way, your rule, that we might fully experience. We thank you for his death and his resurrection that ultimately enables that to be our hope. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you.